Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African Studies a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Ebenezer Obadare about his book, Pentecostal Republic, Religion and the Struggle for State Power in Nigeria. Professor Obadare, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Uh, Professor Obadare, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little more about yourself. Maybe like what experiences or mentors in your early life motivated you to get a PhD and kind of how did your academic interests develop? Okay. Oh, thanks for that. That's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, if you can tell from my, my accent, you know, I grew up in Nigeria. I was born in Nigeria and um, I did my first and second degrees in Nigeria at the Obafemi Awolowo University. Um, I studied history for my first degree, studied international relations for my second degree um, before I went to the London School of Economics to do my PhD, which I finished in 2005. Um, And then in between, between 1995 and 2001, I taught international relations at, you know, Obafemi Awolo University, where I did my first and, and second degrees. Um, my PhD was on, you know, the theory and, and practice of, of civil society in Nigeria, and my interest in religion is is sort of an outgrowth of my interest in in, in, in civil society. Um, so I'm interested in my work in. So the, the way I like to frame the question is this: you know, when the state says don't, people do not necessarily stop. People continue to act. So I'm interested in those, you know, forms of resistance in, you know, different kinds of agency that are informal, that are, you know, between the interstices, that are between the cracks, and that are not normally captured, you know, in in conventional, you know, in in mainstream scholarship. So the the title of my first book, um, so humor, silence, and and civil society in Nigeria, is sort of, you know, it's a it's it's it, it sort of seals you know, my interest in those informal strategies of, you know, of resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, I've long been interested in, in religion. You can't but be interested, you know, in, in religion if you grew up in Nigeria. You know, apparently Nigeria is one of the most, you know, religious countries in the world. And, you know, all you have to do is, you know, go to Nigeria and, you know, the evidence is just, you know, sort of staring at you, in, you know, staring you in the face. So I've always been interested in, in religion, you know, in terms of, you know, my, my academic interest. I'm interested in how, you know, religious, you know, agents who may or may not be religious themselves mobilize religious reasons um, to justify their intervention in, in state policy. On the other hand, I'm also interested in how, you know, members of the of the political elite, you know, use, you know, religious justification, you know, and in also mobilize, use their own um their interactions with members of what I call the theocratic elite, how they use that to legitimize, you know, their own stay in power. So uh, my work on, on civil society, my work on religion and politics, I believe that at some point, you know, they intersect. So that's, that's just a little bit, you know, of a background to, you know, where I'm from and, you know, the kind of work that I do. Great. And yeah, so you mentioned that it's hard not to be uh, interested in religion having grown up in Nigeria can you perhaps give us a bit more of an overview of the role of religion in kind of Nigerian 
daily life, not necessarily just in politics, but yeah, it's 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 one of it, it, that's 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 an excellent question. Um, so I I come from a so in the western part of Nigeria, you know, where I grew up, I'm Yoruba, you know, in terms of ethnicity. Um, it's broadly split, you know, there's a broad divide between, you know, bet- between Islam, you know, and, and Christianity. You know, most people are either, you know, either Christians, you know, or they are Muslims. And in most families, you know, find, you know, people practicing, you know, both, you know, both faiths within, you know, within the same family. Um, and as such is the, the, the way things are in Nigeria that, you know, you can't really understand the country. You know, without understand, you know, Nigerians' interest, you know, in, you know, Nigerians without really understanding the fact that religion and and ethnicity, you know, are mutually implicated. So, at, you can't understand Nigeria without understanding, you know, the way in which, you know, religion, you know, permeates, you know, everyday life. Um, whether you're talking about, you know, um, you know public spaces, you know, you know, informal spaces, what people do in, you know, in, in stadiums, what people do in, you know, in terms of interpersonal, you know, relations, religion plays a, a crucial role. And for me, as a student of, and a student of Nigerian politics, religion becomes, for me, an entree into understanding, you know, what people do, you know, within the political sphere. All right. Well, I think that's like a good introduction to getting into the book. Um, so what, you know, you sort of mentioned it a little bit, but what kind of inspired you to um, write this book in particular and, and how does it kind of build on your previous research? Okay. So I, the, the, the key argument, let me, let me start with, you know, what I, call, I mean, you've read the book, the key <laughs> argument in the book. So the key argument in the book is that you can't understand the Nigerian Fourth Republic, you know, which started in 1999 and which continues. Um, without understanding the role of Pentecostalism. So basically, you know, what I'm, the idea I'm developing there is that, you know, in order to make sense of Nigerian politics since 1999, you have to pay attention, you know, to the dynamics, you know, and, you know, the contortions and the gyrations and the influence, you know, of, of Pentecostalism. You know, one of the key arguments I make is that the, the, the outline of the Nigerian Fourth Republic, you know, the way you know power has changed hands from one regime to another is in itself you know that those things are in themselves only to ultimately explicable when you know you pay attention to the way in which pentecostalism you know has developed over the course of the fourth republic and the argument i'm making is that you know the moment that the fourth republic itself was born, you know, in 1999, was the very moment, the precise moment when, you know, Pentecostalism itself became the chief expression of Christianity in the country. So two things were going on. You know, power was shifting hands from the north to the southern part of the country, but at the same time, power was changing hands between Islam, from Islam to Christianity. But that not just from Islam to Christianity, that within Christianity itself, a change was taking place from what you might call, you know, mainstream Christianity to Pentecostal Christianity. So what I try to do in my book is to try and account for the inf- for what happened. One, to understand why power changed hands, you know, between North and South, and why power changed hands between main Christ, mainstream Christianity and Pentecostal Christianity, and how since 1999 it has become almost impossible to understand politics, to, be, to understand entertainment, to understand culture in the country if you don't pay attention you know, to the ascendant power of Pentecostalism. So kind of related to that, how is it that Pentecostalism comes to dominate within Christian Nigeria? Why are they kind of able to become the, the more dominant strain? It's that, That's a great question. I don't know if I have all the answers, but, mm-hmm. you know, not only in this book, but in some of my other writings, I've tried to, you know, sort of account for that. You know, there are maybe, you know, a couple, maybe two, you know, two or three reasons. One is the, you know, um, the fact that against a background of, you know, economic precarity, you know, global transformations, political uncertainty, 
Pentecostalism provides what you might call, you know, a theory of life, you know, a, 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 a master explanation, if you will, right? Part of the strength, you know, part of the appeal of Pentecostalism is that, you know, it's basically saying the country is going through this period of, you know, tremendous economic stress. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, there's a lot of things going on that people are struggling to understand. There's a lot going on, not just in Nigeria, but in Africa and the rest of the world. And Pentecostalism provides an assurance, not just in terms of, in, in two terms. One, God knows why this is happening. Two, it shall be well. Everything is going to be fine. So that's what I mean by, you know, providing a theory of what's going on. Um, and why is that important? In a context in which, you know, traditional, you know, sources of authority, you know, like, you know, the, you know, the universities, members of the intelligentsia, you know, the political class, you know, the scientific elite, as those poles of authority have failed in their duties, succumbing, you know, to some of the pressures that I've mentioned, you know, political pressures and economic pressures, and we can talk more, you know, about this, you know, later on. At that time, you know, Pentecostalism has arisen and as has and as given people these reassurances that these other forms of authority have failed or are failing to provide. So that that's one reason, you know, I think why you know it's been tremendously successful. The second thing is what I call, you know, and I, I don't say this provocatively and I'll try to explain, I call it the sex of it all. Right, and when I'm talking about the sense of it, sex of it all, I'm not just talking about sex as sex, even though that is part of it. They, they, I'm, I'm talking about just the, the sheer ebullience, you know, the, the appeal to the senses, you know, the sensationalism, you know, not, you know, of of it all. The fact that transpentecostalism is a faith that you know appeals to the senses right one of the critiques of you know mainstream you know um mainstream christianity was that you know it was too too staid you know too conservative you know almost colonial you know in its in in its lack of rhythm and then you find you know pentecostalism that is it's about sound it's about joy it's about hululation. It's about people rolling on the floor. See, that's what I call the sex of it all. There, you know, there's a way in which, and I don't know if you've attended a Pentecostal church before. I have. You are, you are almost levitating, you know, on account of the, the power of the music, the sound, people smiling. It's a religion of colors, right? And I'm not talking about colors in a racial sense. There, there is a bedazzlement, you know, that comes with it all. And it's one of the reasons why it's been it's been so so successful. In fact, so successful as I hinted at in the book and as I've written about in my other work that it it sort of made inroads, you know, into not just into mainstream Christianity, claiming some of its its clients, you know, clientele from from them, but also especially in, you know in Western Nigeria where I do my work, it made inroads into Islam, such that you know Muslims. You know, I've had to also do a reassessment, you know, of their own theological repertoires. And they've said, look, hold on, right? Where do we want our kids, you know, how do we protect our, our kids from this, you know, theological insurgency? You know, how do we make sure that this faith that is claiming people, you know, and that is basically, you know, claiming people because of these things that is done so successfully, how do we change our own, you know, our own modes, our own performances? And that's that's so, and that is what has happened. That even Islam in Western Nigeria has become charismatized, you know, as I claim in my work. So, you know, those are at least, you know, the two, you know, the two reasons. You know, a third reason would be, you know, that it 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 seems to be a faith. You know, it's 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 a dynamic, you know, it's a dynamic faith. Right. Long before, you know, everybody wisened up, you know, to, you know, to um, to the need to digitize Christian, you know, Pentecostal churches, you know, beat everybody to it. Right. They are on Facebook, they're on YouTube, you know, they are, they are everywhere. Right. They, it's, a, it's a faith that is, I think, you know, adaptable and, you know, for, for the times. And in that, that fact that it's a faith that is quick on its feet you know, makes it hugely, hugely successful. And then the, the last thing, which I think is not a trivial point, you know, about why Pentecostalism, you know, has been so successful is that 
you know, whether you like it or not, it gives a direct answer to the problem of, you know, economic uncertainty, especially in terms of, you know, you know uh, providing employment. Not just, I mean, so you, when you have all these many churches, you've got to hire, you know, a large number of people to do a whole number of things. But much more important, there is, there is a sense in which the pastorate, you know, is self-recreating, right? You have a large number of people, you know. So because Pentecostalism does not need the kind of, you know, traditional top-down approval, you know, and hierarchies that, you know, mainstream, mainstream Christianity, you know, needs, it's, it's very, it's very, so all I have to do now if I wanted to start a church is I just start it. Right? I don't need any kind of training. I don't need anybody to give me approval. So there, there, is, there, there is a certain spirit of entrepreneurship, you know, that it, it licenses, you know, and it's due to all the, the combination of, you know, all these things that I've mentioned, you know, that it's become hugely successful, not just in Nigeria. You know, but, you know, more so in, you know, in other parts of Africa, you know, as you must, as you must have you know, discovered. Yeah, and no, I know of a few examples of, of people who have started a Pentecostal church just outside of their house. So it doesn't even have to go outside of the compound necessarily exactly. when you're starting. Uh, you mentioned, you know, a bit about um, the 1990s and the 1980s. So, I mean, how does this contrast then to the dominant political culture that kind of came before it? Um, what do you mean? So, you know, but now your book is concerned with the Fourth Republic and how yes. the Pentecostalism is sort of the dominant, dominant religious force in that political culture. So what, how does that contrast then to kind of what political culture was like in the, in the 90s and 80s? Oh, I see your point. That's a great question. So um, before... Before the 1990s, so it's it's almost like it's a, it's a different age, you know, or, or a different era. So before the 1990s, you know, you could think about the, the the relationship between religion and politics, you know, in this way. For many, for you know, that the northern part of the country, the Muslim-dominated part of the country, was not only you know religiously dominant; it was also politically dominant. So on account of that. People in the South, you know, the predominantly Christian South, wanted what was called a power shift. And the agitation for that has always been baked, you know, into Nigerian history. As soon as there was an awareness, you know, there was this perception that the, the, the country, the politics was being dominated by, you know, the Muslim North. You know, the, the campaign started, you know, in the South, you know, for... You know, it, for, for, for political diversity, you know, if I can use that term, like, you know, look, the North should not be holding power, you know, power should also, you know, trickle down, you know, to, to the political elite, you know, in the South. And then there was the election of June 12, 1993, right? You know, there was something significant about that election. It was won by, this was organized by the military, you know. The, the, the regime of, you know, uh, Ibrahim Babangida, but the election was won by a southerner, you know, Moshud Abiola, you know, um, a millionaire, who had friends not just in the south, but also in the north. But Abiola was a Muslim. His running mate at that time was also a Muslim. So everybody thought that, you know, that was enough concession, you know, to the, you know, the northern political elite that the man who was going to succeed Babangida as the president was a Muslim, even though he was a southerner, but he was a Muslim. Oh, his running mate, Baba Ganaki Ngibe, was also a Muslim. So, in fact, before the election, people thought that it was going to be impossible to, to have a, a, you know, a Muslim Muslim ticket win a national election in Nigeria because of the strict Christian-Muslim divide in the country. But Abiola overcame all those odds and, became, and, and won the June 12, 1993 election. And then what happened? What happened was that, you know, the election was cancelled, you know, it was abrogated by the military, sending, you know, the country into, you know, a, th a political turmoil, you know, that lasted the better part of, you know, two decades. But why is this important? Nigeria was in the middle of that crisis, you know, which was also deepened when Abiola himself died, you know, in, in 1998, you know, that, you know, during the Abacha regime. And Abacha himself, you know, also died. So, this was 1998. It was felt that in order to pacify, you know, the southern Yorubas, who had not only lost Abiola, but had also lost the chance to have a Yoruba in, you know, in Asorok, you know, the seat of federal power, that the thing to do 
was to make sure that you know you to put a Yoruba man in 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 in, in Nasorok, which was why the election you know that inaugurated the Fourth Republic in 1999 was a straightforward contest between two Yorubas, Olusegun Obasanjo, who eventually won, and Samuel Falai, you know, who lost. So there was, so that was the, that was the political, that was, the, that was the, the political milieu on the eve of, you know, of the Fourth Republic, you know, in 1999. The, 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 the structure, you know, was such that the, um, not only was power, you know, believed to be lodged, you know, almost on, you know, impeachably so in the north, power was also deemed to be controlled, you know, by, you know, by Muslims. So in 1999, the the importance of the Obasanjo presidency was that not only was he a southerner, even though he had been a former military man, but he was a southerner, he was a Christian, but much more important, you know, given the analysis in my book and the, and the argument that I lay out in the book, he was also in Pentecostal. While he was in jail, you know, he had been jailed by the military, he converted to Pentecostalism. He became born again. He wrote this book, This Animal Called Man. You know, it was clear that he had, he had become a changed man, not just in terms of his, you know, general political orientation, but in terms of his, you know, Christian morality. He, had, he has changed from being, you know, a, a, a mainstream, you know, a Baptist to a Pentecostal. So it, it was a very fundamental, you know, very foundational moment in the country's history, you know. So that's the, that's the you know, the, that's the, the, the nature of the milieu, you know, up till 1999, when power changed hands from the north to the south, you know, from, you know, from, you know, from, from Muslims, you know, from, from a Muslim to a Christian, but much more important, you know, not just to a regular Christian, but to a Pentecostal Christian who was not shy about his conversion to Pentecostalism. Great. Yeah. And then what are some of the ways in which Obasanjo's born again identity kind of inform his government, you know, how it's set up, structured, uh, as well as the political culture that develops during his presidency. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that question because I think it's it's extremely important. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, Abbasanjo had signaled to the entire country that it was it was a Pentecostal, right? Um, he, he had published a book, this animal called man, you know, which was a development of his, of his own, you know, personal Pentecostalist Pentecostalist philosophy. So everybody knew, you know what they were getting while he was in jail and he's, he's written about this in his you know in his three volume biography you know my watch you know he, he spoke about how while he was in jail you know many people he, he spoke about why he converted you know to pentecostalism um he believed and i think with with you know with some good evidence that the state you know the military state had sought to you know to um to to kill him and that it was due to god's intervention that he was kept alive. So why is this important? When he became president, he basically interpreted the fact of his being president as a divine thing, right? Divine in the sense that God had kept him alive for this precise moment. And when the, the first speech he made, you know, as president, it was almost like being in church, Right, you know the language, you know the things that he said, and I detail some of these things in his book. So it was a clear message to any Pentecostal listening that look, this is not just another president. This is one of us. This is our man. This is the first Pentecostal president inaugurating not just the Fourth Republic, but a newfangled Pentecostal republic. You know this is central to my argument. So what did Obasanjo do? You know going forward. He, he used to attend, you know, a church, you know, in, 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 in Abuja. And then he stopped going because, you know, as he explained, you know, this was causing a lot of, you know, problems in terms of security and logistics. And what did he do? Again, something symbolic in terms of, you know, the imbrication of, you know, religion and politics in the country. He erected the first Christian chapel in, in the, within the precinct of Asorok. Remember, for the most part, the country had been under the, the control of, you know, another Muslims who had a mosque, you know, in Asorok. So for, 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 for Christians, 
you know, the symbolism of the fact that, you know, for the first time, there's a chapel in Nassau Rock, you know, it, it couldn't be, you know, overestimated, you know, and everybody celebrated it. And it wasn't just, remember, you know, you're not just in a, by a, an ordinary chapel, right? You know, because even when services were held, it was one of those, it became a space in which people saw to eye, eye to eye, you know, with Obasanjo, you know, in terms of his faith, could also press flesh with him. You know, in terms of trying to, you know, secure, you know, policy concessions. And then some of the appointments he made, those people, maybe not Obasanjo himself, but those who are, you know, who benefited from those appointments, felt that they had been appointed in, into office on account of their being Pentecostals, right? So all those things, you know, whether in terms of actual things that Obasanjo did, you know, the signals that he sent out, it is because on account of all those things and the things he himself said, the way you, in which he opened up access to Asorok, you know, to Pentecostals, you know, to prayer warriors, you know, to people who spoke the language of Pentecostalism. It's because of all those things that in my book, I call, you know, Obasanjo's presidency, the first Pentecostal presidency in the country. Great. Yeah. And your book also details how, you know, Muslims were also engaged uh, in politics, though, during this time, you know, in part with the introduction of Sharia in the North. So maybe yes. can you explain kind of how this was interpreted sort of broadly in different parts of Nigeria, as well as how you yourself interpret it? Okay. So that, again, thank you. That's, that's a great question. So it, 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 let me preface that, you know, with this, you know, and say that in order to understand you know, Nigerian politics, the structure of politics in the country, you have to understand the, the mutual and dynamic interaction of religion, politics, and ethnicity. All those three things are constantly dwelling and are at war, you know, with, you know, with one another. So when Obasanjo came in, it was clear that even though, you know, it was a product of a political concession, and even though the Northern political elite knew that the next president, you know, the first president of the fourth republic had to come from the south. It wasn't as if they then, you know, they, the, the reason why they wanted Obasanjo was that, remember, he had been head of state between 1976 and 1979. He had handed, he was the one who handed over power to, you know, President Shagari, you know, um, for the second republic. So he, he, he had a lot of support across the country because it was felt that, you know, compared to other members of the southern political elite, this was somebody, you know, that the northern elite could trust. He was a conservative, you know, in his in his in his approach, you know, if not in, in his overall politics. And they felt that having been in jail for a considerable number of years, that you know, he was in the mood to he was the right person to rally around and gather all the you know con, you know contending forces um, in in the country. But it was also not lost on them that you know the person what they were getting was also a change man you know, politically, if not spiritually. So so one of the very interesting things that happened was that, you know, not long after Obasanjo became president, you know, the campaign to implement, you know, to Sharia law began in the northern part of, part of the country. The way those who supported Obasanjo, you know, the, the media in the south, you know, the way they saw it, and not illegitimately, if you ask me, was that, you know, this was too much of a, of, of a coincidence. You know, you are agitating for Sharia law, you know, a strict Muslim law at a time when, for the first time in the country's history, you know, power had changed hands, you know, from, you know, from, the, from the south to the north under a man who was very open, you know, about his conversion to Pentecostalism. So this wasn't, many people didn't take this, you know, as, oh yeah, you know, just, you know, people wanting to be governed under a new set of rules. It was seen to be, you know, just pure enemy action. Um, and, and for the most part, you know, that's, that, I mean, that's what, you know, most people saw. And as I said earlier, I, I, it, 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 it's not unreasonable, you know, but the, the, the footnote, you know, the caveat I would like to, you to add to that is that even though the campaign for Sharia law was intense, and even though a number of states, I think starting with Sanfara State, you know, I think about, you know, 13 other, you know, 14 other northern states, you know, began this, you know, movement, you know, um, for, um, um, for to have the Sharia criminal code. It's important to underscore that this was not the first time that agitation for Sharia 
was being made in the history of the country. You know, part of you know northern you know northern you know Muslim religious politics historically has always been an agitation. You know, to have you know northern states governed on the basis of the Sharia. The wrinkle, you know, the fly in the ointment has always been that while those states are predominant, have been and will remain predominantly Muslim, many of them have sizable non-Muslim minorities. And the, the, the problem that, that that has raised, you know, has always been, sure, let's say majority of the Muslims, you know, want actually, you know, Sharia law to regulate every aspect of their, you know, of their daily lives. What about the, the non-Muslim, you know, the Muslim Muslim minorities, you know, in those states. So that that it that has always been the issue. And you know, if you are if you are if you are one of those people who believe that the whole thing was carefully choreographed, you know, to you know as a political challenge, you know, to Obasanjo, you have your your your, your proof in the fact that over time, you know, that thing has you know the whole thing has stepped out, right? No one, I mean, not even under Yaradua, who succeeded Obasanjo, you know, and you would have thought that that would have been a great opportunity for the Sharia thing, you know, to, you know, for the Northern thing to have doubled down on it. You know, the campaign, you know, fizzled out, you know, justifying the skepticism of some that one, this was politically targeted at Obasanjo, and that two, this was a ruse by, you know, the Northern political elite you know, to avoid responsibility, you know, for their, you know, for their own, you know, financial responsibility and, you know, to divert attention away, you know, from legitimate questions of political governance in the North. Great. Okay. So you next detail the presidency of Yar Adua, which yes. you describe as sort of a Muslim uh, interlude. Interlude, yeah. How do you see Pentecostalism as still being the dominant religio-political force during this time? Okay, the, the, thank you. L- let me first talk about why I call it, and I, I think I say a Muslim interregnum or an interlude. Yeah, and, and you're right. Yeah. So, the, 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 what I'm, I'm saying that because it's the, it's a it was short-lived, right? Yaradua, you know, unfortunately died. You know, I think two three years. You know into his, you know, three years into his, his, his first term. And his presidency was, you know, followed, you know, by the presidency of good luck Jonathan, right? So that's why I'm calling it, you know, in the, in the long durée, if you will, you know, of Pentecostal power, of Pentecostal politics, of Pentecostal influence on power, Yaradua's, you know, presidency was just this brief intrusion, you know, this brief intermission after which, you know, the game recommenced, you know, for you know, for 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 Pentecostalism. Having said that, the intermission itself is central to our understanding of the continuation of Pentecostal power, right? So, in order to become president, even though he was a Muslim, Yaradua had to bow to Pentecostal power. As I as I as I outlined in the book, he visited, you know, the you know, he paid the the obligatory political, you know, pilgrimage to the Redeemed Christian Church of God, you know, headquarters uh, on Lagos Ibadan Expressway. Um, the, the Redeemed Christian Church of God, for your listeners, you know, and as I say in the book, is you know, easily is the most, you know, important Pentecostal church, not just in Nigeria, you know, but in Africa, you know, under the overseership of, you know, um, General Overseer, you know, um, Christ, um, Enoch, you know, Adeboye. So he had to do that, even though he was a Muslim. He knew that without the support of the doyen, you know, of the Pentecostal elite in Nigeria, that politically, you know, he had, you know, that there was nothing that he could do. Um, and then even when, you know, if you look at, you know, the, 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 the process, you know, what happened in the last six to eight months of his, you know, you know, Frankly, you know, very tragic, you know, presidency. You know, when he was taken out outside the country, and then he had to brought back, you know, in the dead of the night, and then you know, and then he eventually passed. Pentecostal power asserted itself, you know, at this very crucial moment. You know, one example, you know, the example I give in the book is the mobilization that led to, you know, the Yaradua's return to the country. The the three four months of political crisis. You know that would not have happened without, you know, the inter- without the work, the political work of, you know, Pastor Tunde Bakari, 
you know, Pastor Tunde Bakare was basically the one, you know, who became, you know, almost overnight, you know, a converter, you know, a, a, a convert, you know, to, 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 you know, to political mobilization, you know, started the Save Nigeria group, you know, gathered the rump of the political elite around him, organized campaigns in different Nigerian cities and, you know, outside Nigeria, all with the aim of forcing President Yaradua to hand over power to his then vice president, Good luck, Jonathan. What happened? What happened was that Yaradua had left the country. You know, he had, you know, people thought before then that he was sick. And one of the, the you know, one of the interesting things is that even before, before he became president, there was suspicion that, you know, he was, you know, that his health was poor. You know, leading to the very dramatic moment when, in the course of a campaign, you know, for his presidency, and him being outside the country, President then President Obasanjo was campaigning for him, had to call him publicly at a campaign rally and to ask him, "Umoru, are you dead?" You know, to which he, to which I responded, "No, my no, sir. You know, my president, I'm not dead, right?" So there had always been questions about the health and capacity you know, physical capacity of, of Yaradua. And then, you know, two, two years, two and a half years into his presidency, he had to be smuggled into his country. The problem, you know, constitutionally speaking, was that it wasn't that he, just that he was out of the country. He did not give, he, did, he, he, he gave no indication of how long he was going to be out of the country. And he did not transfer, you know, political power to the vice president as required by the constitution. So it was a Pentecostal president who pointed out to all the, who pointed out all these contradictions and who started the Save Nigeria group and you know for for 3 4 months you know you know it, it, that was the chief that was the main political event in the country and everything was organized around the energy you know of a single Pentecostal pastor the point being that even for a notionally muslim presidency you know we see very clearly the power of Pentecostalism, you know, being vividly dramatized and highlighted. And, you know, of course, this is also the time when we see the rise of Boko Haram um, in yes. the Northeast. So, like, how does this also fit into your story of political so, Pentecostalism? Thank you. So I also analyzed that. So um, it was under, you know, the, 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 uh, the, during the presidency of, of, of Yaradua that the insurgency, you know, in the northern part, northern part of, the, of, the, of the country, um, started the, the the political dimension of it. I think is interesting. That I also talk about in the book is that you know. So when it started, it was generally believed that this was another of those you know, you know interruptions. You know that will you know. So the northern part of the country you know is is renowned for all these you know for periodic interruptions you know of extremist extremist you know is you know from extremist Islam. Right, um, the, the Maitatsini, you know, riots, you know, so you have all these, you know, millennial figures, you know, coming out to challenge, you know, the state and asking for an installation, you know, of this pure kind of Islam, you know, that you know they felt that not just the northern part of the country, but the country as a whole needed. So when Boko Haram started, you know, the the, the, the just the many people just basically thought, well, you know, this was one of those things, but. As, as Boko Haram, you know, began to show its hands, and as soon as it became evident that, you know, Boko Haram is, you know, essentially anti-modernist, you know, in its, in its philosophy, and that it was undiscriminating in, in, its, in, in its targeting of, of Muslims and Christians, you know, it, it became an issue in, in, in the southern part of the, of the, of the country. And this was something that Yaradua could not, you know, undo while he was president. And the problem was, you know, transferred, was handed over to, you know, the good Lord, you know, good Lord Jonathan who succeeded him. And as I say in the book, as you know, this was one of the reasons, you know, why Jonathan failed as president. You know, his failure to not just to understand the seriousness of, you know, of the, you know, of the challenge, you know that Boko that Boko Haram posed, but overall is failure to deal with you know the um, the 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 kidnap you know the abduction of the girls from you know um, from Shibok. Mm-hmm. 
Great. Well, I think that's a good transition. So obviously, as you mentioned, right, the next president is Good Luck Jonathan, uh, aptly named Good Luck, as you know, part of his <laughs> political bio goes. So how does he build um, alliances with the Pentecostal elite? And kind of how does this influence his public persona and political agenda? Thank you. So the, the, first, the first remark I would like to make in respect to that is that, remember in the book, I describe his presidency as, you know, President, Pentecostal Presidency too, right? So Obasanjo was the first Pentecostal president. After the Muslim interregnum of Yaradua, then we have the Jonathan presidency. That's the second, you know, Pentecostal, you know, president. So um, a little bit about, you know, um, Yaradua's biography, uh, sorry, Good Lord Jonathan's biography, you know, will help, you know, your, uh, our, our listeners here. Um, the, the, the good luck, right? This was something that he made, you know, tremendous political capital out of, right? Central to, our, to any attempt to understand good Lord Jonathan is, you know, the emphasis he himself put on that name, right? That he was a man who was beyond, you know, not interested in politics, you know, all he wanted to do was render public service. He was content with the role that God had given him in his life. And it was God, you know, that favored him, you know, because he had been, you know, in the, the wife's name is patience, right? It was because of a combination of good luck and patience that good luck Jonathan, you know, became the president, you know, of Nigeria. Much more than Obasanjo, good luck was very open, you know, and sometimes, you know, frustratingly so, you know, about, you know, is not just his, his faith and, you know, those, you know, opulent performances, you know, what I call, you know, conspicuous humility, you know, in the book, but the way in which he kowtowed to, bowed before and openly appeased the Pentecostal, you know, elite was very frustrating, you know, for, um, for many observers. I mean, even from the first day when he was sworn in, you know, after that crisis, after, you know, it, when he had to take over, you know, as interim president, it was clear that he was playing to a, a Pentecostal, you know, public out there. You know, the way he removed his cap, you know, with the, you know, with, with the, with the crest of, you know, of the, of the Nigerian state behind his back. And close his eyes, you know, claps his hands, and you know, with you know, all the cameras, you know, clinking away. It was clear that he wanted to be seen as a humble Christian, you know, Pentecostal, and that that was the template, and he followed that template to a T, you know, throughout his presidency. Um, as I write in the book, there was no okay. He never had. There was no occasion when he needed to kneel down before a pastor that he didn't take the opportunity. You know, he was. You know, his his humility. You know, was very very performative. You know, it was a pose. He basically went everywhere trying to persuade everybody. You know, that he was a Christian. And it, if you in, in terms of you know, um, politically speaking, what he was trying to do is understandable. Right. It was basically acknowledging, you know, the, the power, you know, of, you know, not just, you know, the Pent, you know, Pentecostals themselves, but the Pentecostal elite, you know, the Tundebakare, you know, you know, in Okadeboye, you know, all these, you know, very important Pentecostal pastors. He recognized their, their, their power and he, he leveraged his reimagined, you know, biography. You know, the bio, his biography as, you know, somebody who grew, you know, as he said, without shoes, you know, without food, you know, and became president. So his story, his personal story, you know, became a, it was Christianized and Pentecostalized, right? Basically, it started telling people that it wasn't, it wasn't interested in politics, but that if you look at who he was and the circumstances in which, you know, he grew up, that God had destined him, you know, for office. But there was another thing. Remember, he had been he had been vice, he had been deputy governor, you know, in Bayosta State to, you know, the late Alamisia. And then that, the Alamisia got into trouble, and then um, Good Lord Jonathan became became governor. He was also, you know, vice president to Yaradua. Yaradua got into, you know, uh, fell, fell sick, could no longer continue in office, and then he became president. So there was this joke about, you know, good luck, right? That, in fact, there was a joke around the time that if you have a friend, you know, or a partner called you good luck, 
you know, be careful because good luck is going to take over from you because something is going to happen to you. But so it, that, that was, you know, his stick, you know, that was the old template, you know, that he developed. And that was the way he, he, he played, you know, his own politics throughout. Um, he appealed to the rump of the Pentecostal elite. He visited the redemption, you know, the redeemed Christian Church of God, you know, camp, you know, several times. He famously knelt down before, you know, Pastor Adeboye himself and asked Pastor Adeboye to pray for him. And he openly confessed, you know, that, you know, look, you know, I'm, 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 I'm hard living. You were basically saying, I'm not the one who is, I'm not right for this office. I cannot do the job. You know, it's only God you can do it, you know. If God can do it, you know, please pray for me so that, you know, I can, I can, I can do, I can. So I call those, you know, in, in my book, you know, ostentatious humility, right? It's not genuine humility, but, you know, performances of humility, you know, aimed at, you know, curing the interest, you know, and support of the, of not just the Pentecostal public, but the larger Nigerian public for means of, you know, political legitimization. And as I also suggest in the book, ultimately, you know, that failed. Even though he had this last minute blitz, you know, where he basically tried, you know, to make sure that he got everybody on his side. I think, you know, there were too many things going for him. And one of the, one of the, 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 the limitations I point out in the book is, you know, I, I was trying to make a distinction between what I call, you know, the, 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 the existence of, a Pentecostal, you know, audience or a Pentecostal public and a Pentecostal vote. And I was suggesting that the fact that there is a Pentecostal public, you know, does not mean that there is a Pentecostal vote because people don't, and this is, there's nothing unique to Nigeria in this, people do not only vote according to their religious conscience, right? People have other things going. They vote across ethnic lines. They vote across regional lines. You know, they, they, they have their own reading you know, of, 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 of the political moment. And at the end of the day, you know, Yaradu could not overcome all those obstacles. And, you know, and that's why it was, it was defeated, you know, by uh, uh, Buari. Yeah, also, I mean, his, <laughs> Jonathan's wife didn't always make things easier. No, she didn't. Thank you for bringing that in. No. And some will tell you that, you know, she was the one who actually, you know, made things more difficult for her husband. Even though I'm, I'm always very careful about that because I, I'm leery, you know, of going after the woman and blame the woman, you know, for the problems of the husband. I, I, I don't like people, I don't like making that argument. Um, having said that, she did very little to enhance her husband's prospects. Well, yeah, I was in Nigeria from 2014 to 2015. Um, and so, right, that was that moment of like, you know, there is Gado that was like, that is- <laughs> the, like the comedic meme of her yes. sort of response. Of- yes. Yes. Unsuccessful no, she, response no, to the Chibok no, girls, yeah. Yeah. In fact, you're right. And, you know, the Darius God moment was, for many people, evidence that the, the regime itself had become clueless, that, you know, they had no proper policy response and that they didn't know how to, you know, basically, you know, um, respond to the, you know, to the insurgency. Yeah. So there was some seriousness beyond the comic moment. So good. This kind of leads into my next question, which is that, you know, some people might think that a Muslim present, you know, preventing Jonathan from getting a second term would suggest that Pentecostalism is not so strong. Um, But how does Buhari's win still kind of provide evidence of the strength of Pentecostal politics? Yes, a a, a great question. Um, For Buhari to win, so you don't start with his victory. You started with his previous losses. Remember when he eventually won in 2015, he had run four times. That was his fourth time of asking. And I remember even before, you know, that election, you know, someone had asked him, you know, if you were to lose this election, will you run again? He said, no, this is it. So he, 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 he he knew that he had to go for broke. And what does that mean? Remember at the third time of, 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 of running in 2011, he had, he had read the political, you know, he had read the, you know, the, the mood in the country very well. What do I mean by that? His vice presidential candidate was Pastor Tunde Bakari of, you know, the latter assembly now called, you know, the Citadel. So it was clear to Buari that in order to win power in the country, you at least had to pay homage. You had to, you know, tip your heart 
you know, to the ascendant, you know, Pentecostal power. And he knew that, right? So uh, my argument in the book is that it was because of his recognition of that that he went after a South, a famous Southern Pentecostal pastor. Now, he did not win, right? But he didn't then interpret that as meaning that he didn't need a Pentecostal pastor. In 2015, he interpreted that as needing the right Pentecostal pastor. So what did he do? He did what everybody running for office in modern Nigeria must willingly do. He went to um, Pastor, Pastor Adeboye and, you know, asked Pastor Adeboye, you know, basically, like, give me a candidate. You know, he was basically telling Pastor Adeboye, I know that I cannot win, you know, if I do not go through you. So Pastor Adeboye, it was Pastor Adeboye who nominated, you know, Professor Oshibajo, Yemi Oshibajo, you know, um, um, Professor Oshibajo uh, is a pastor, still is a pastor, you know, of one of the, you know, RCCG, you know, the Dem churches on, 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 on Victoria Island in Lagos. So the lesson that Obasanjo, that, sorry, that Buhari learned was that you need a pastor. Not that you did not need a pastor. You needed a pastor, but you needed the right one. And I think in 2015, you know, he got, he got, he, um, he got the right one. Um, so that's, that, so it, again, so it's not so there's a Muslim, you're right, there's a Muslim in power. But as I argue in my book, he's being overshadowed or you know, by you know another Pentecostal a Pentecostal Christian. So for Pentecostals, you know, there is the there is the the assurance that maybe the man at the top of the ticket is not is not one of us. You know, maybe he's a Muslim, you're right? But at the very least, we have this, you know, consolatory prize. We have somebody in there, there who is one of us. So, and the, the, the politics of this is interesting, right? So from the southern part of the country, if you're a Pentecostal, you know, you, you have the pleasure of seeing your man as next in line, you know, to the president. That if anything were to happen to the president, a Pentecostal is going to be there. If you're from the north, or if you're a Buaris, if you're a supporter of the president, you know, you're sort of secure there because you know that you've pacified this very important, <coughs> excuse me, you've pacified this very important political, you know, constituency. It's a win-win, you know, when you look at it, right? It's you're a Muslim, you're there, but you're being, you've been, you're being shadowed, you know, by Pentecostal pastor. So you've basically been able to account, you know, for the true traditional, you know, political interest, you know, in the country. You know the power of you know the power of Islam and the power of you know Christianity on the other hand. Great. Well, one of the most interesting parts of your book uh, to me was sort of detailing the prevalence of the assumption that sort of Nigeria is under attack by mm -hmm. demonic forces and yes. that politicians are particularly vulnerable um, yes. to such attacks. Can you kind of explain this a bit more and kind of how this connects? Um, to Pentecostalism, and also how does this then kind of support their hold on power? Thank you. So remember, I, I, I've forgotten the question I was asked. Okay, when you were asking me about why Pentecostalism is, is, is so successful, and I was telling you that one of the reasons why it's successful is that it has this, you know, this very interesting theory of, of why Nigeria is the way it is. So it, it Pentecostalism is able to account for Nigerian history. It's able to account for what's going on, but it also offers assurances about the future. Now, an aspect of that is this: that as a country, then the country, as a country, the, the polity is con under constant attack by all kinds of you know strange demonic forces, and there's a history to this. If you ask the average, average Pentecostal, you know, wh when did this start? So they go back to 1977. You know, the fact that the country opened up itself, you know, to those con what they call contrary forces, the fact that the country bowed itself before those, those dark powers, you know, the fact that the country has, you know, Arabic on its currency, you know, all those things taken together is, is proof 
that the country sold its soul, you know, to the devil. And is the and it is because it sold its soul to the devil that it's under constant demonic attack, and that it this demonic attack accounts for the country's you know bad luck, you know, in politics, you know, in economics, in technology, in sport, in development. In order to ameliorate, in order to remove, you know, to counter this, you know, these dark forces, this dark power, you know, you have to mobilize. You know, you have to, you know, as a Christian, fight the good fight. You have to wrestle. You know, you you can't, you know, you can't just sit down, you know, you know, in resignation. You have to. Why is this interesting? This is interesting because it makes, you know. Issues of political performance, not about you know the 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 soundness of the policy, not about you know the rigor of the implementation. It's about whether the right spiritual forces have been pacified. Who gets to pacify these religious forces? Well, mainstream Pentecostals, everyday Pentecostals, but more important, the man of God. You know, the, the, the members of the theocratic class, they are the ones who have, you know, the resources. They are the ones who have, you know, the, the sanctity from on high. And they are the ones who have been licensed by God himself to go after this dark forces. So it, it's, it's a theory that is not only very interesting in terms of the account it provides, you know, of, you know, of the economy, you know, of development, of politics, but it's one that also, also, you know, automatically gives power, you know, to those who are pushing the theory, because it's, it's interpretation of reality is that it's not about politicians. It's about the larger hidden forces that politicians themselves sometimes may not understand. And, and one more thing, if you're a politician, you have to love this. Right? <laughs> Somebody is telling me that when I steal a million dollars that I've, I've been allocated to dig 10 public boreholes, I'm under the influence of forces that I don't understand. And that instead of being sanctioned, I need prayers. My God, give me prayers. Just let me keep the million dollars. So it, it's in that sense that, you know, not just in this particular book, but in my work. Generally, I try to suggest that, you know, whether it's, it's intended or not, you know, Pentecostalism in, in Africa is a reactionary movement, right? To the extent that at the end of the day, it gives this pass to politicians and politicians are aware of that pass. It's, 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 it's a reactionary movement. So that's how the old demonic forces, you know, prayer warriors and all of that, you know, that's how it works. Great. And, you know, your concluding chapter is also quite interesting. You know, you do a sort of a deep uh, dive into the language used during the sermons of sort of one Pentecostal pastor, but, you know, it's by no means uh, unique to just him, uh, which you describe as violent prayer. Um, So can you kind of describe this violent language of prayer and explain why it's significant to pay attention to? Okay, thank you. So this is, we're talking about the... the, um, the, the 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 philosophy of you know um, Daniel Lukoya, the overseer of you know um, Mountain of Fire, um, Mountain of Fire Miracles. So it's one of the leading you know um, Pentecostal churches in Nigeria. A quick note about you know Pastor Lukoya is that unlike the other pastors that you know we've mentioned, um, he is not actually overtly political. So that's what keep in mind. Um, he rarely ever comes out openly to talk about politics. You know, politicians do not go kneel down before him to say, you know, there's a pol- you know, there's an election coming in. You know, you're coming up, pray for me. He is sort of, you know, is maybe not retiring is the word, you know, but sort of hidden. You know, he doesn't really come out to talk about. So, but my point is that he's not less political for being for being that. You know, for being so. And my, so in order to, to demonstrate that, you know, I, I, I talk about, you know, is, is, is language. And why is the language important? The man himself is important. He's the older of a, of a, of a science PhD. I've forgotten, you know, the, the particular discipline, you know. I think it's schooled in the United Kingdom, got a PhD, you know. Um, but, and he's one of the most prolific, you know, of, of, you know, Nigerian pastors. I think at the last count he's written, you know, almost 200 books. 
But and I say this, you know, not as, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to condescend. But once you've read one of his books, you've read all of his books because he speaks within a particular register. And it, it's always it, it's it's always this that whatever you are doing, wherever you are, there is there are always dark forces combating against you in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, right? So in his own language, right, there is no and it's in his imagination, right, there is no room for human agency. Right? You have to be constantly alert. You have to be a prayer warrior. The forces that we are, you are up against as an institution, as a member of his church, as a member of the country, as anyone living in the world, the forces that you are combating are dark, insidious, and persistent. And the only way, and we're coming to the, you know, to the art of things now, the only way to combat those forces is through this, you know, spiritual militancy, unremitting, relentless spiritual militancy, right? My, my inference, you know, so what, part of what I'm saying in, 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 the, in, in, in that chapter is that that language of violence, right, while being explicable, Within you know the, the 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 Pentecostal theology that you know we've tried to lay lay out, lay out is also explicable against the background of you know pre-democratic Nigerian sociology, right? So you go to the you know so it, 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 the, the the very language that he uses, the language of of overtaking, the language of rebutter, you know the extremely violent language can only come from a country where such language is banal and is deployed, it's ubiquitous and deployed on an everyday basis. And I try to, you know, to provide several examples of that in that chapter. But there's something else, if I may just, you know, quickly say this, that also worries me about, you know, not just his languaging, but the, the, the overall matrix within which, you know, it is elaborated. And it is this. There's almost so. Think about classic totalitarianism. You know, one one element of totalitarianism is the, it's just the it's the completeness of politics, right? That in 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 a totalitarian state, there is no way not to be political, right? Politics is everywhere. There is no room for individuality. No room for individual. It it is it is stifling. And part of my worry, you know, with the you know, the theology, you know, of you know not just violent Pentecostalism, but the kind of mental, you know, impulse behind it, you know, as elaborated by you know Pastor, you know, Odukoy, um, um, by, by this pastor is that by Pastor Lukoya is that it, it it's for me a spiritual version of you know political totalitarianism. Right, that they are both two sides, you know, of or, or, of the of the same coin. That with this kind of spirituality or maybe spiritualism, there's no room for individual agency, right? And as I said, part of the reason why I'm worried with that is not just because I care about human agency, but also because I, as I told you earlier, it's it, it's this is paradise for a politician, right? You've basically given every politician in advance an excuse, right? If everything is controlled by unseen demons, if human beings cannot do anything, you know, without being influenced, without being under, you know, you're basically living under the influence, if you know what I mean. So there's driving under the influence, you know, this is living under the influence. The influence here not being alcohol, the influence here being all kinds of strange, intangible forces that human beings have is basically no control over, but that they constantly have to pray against. And it's not as if you pray against one force today and then you're done, right? So in some of his books, right, he lists demons for... So if you're if you trying to make a decision about a job and you can't make a decision, it's because of a demon. If um, you are caught in traffic, Right, there are demons that are probably making sure that you know you can't get out of of that. Um, you go to the marketplace, you are trying to decide between two products. There is a demon of this indecision. So you've got to this point in his own theology where 
There is a demon for every moment, every moment of human existence. And, you know, it, 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 it's a problem, you know, in a philosophical sense. It's a problem in a fra- practical sense. It's a problem in a moral sense. Yeah. And it also seems like it would make the, the stakes of elections extra high because it's not just, you know, political stakes, but there's also spiritual stakes, yes. it would seem. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, Professor Obadari, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I, I do have one last uh, question for you, which is that I was hoping you might tell us a bit about what project or projects uh, that you're currently working on. Oh, thank you. Um, so the, the, the book we've been discussing, Pentecostal Republic, is, as I say in the preface to the book, the first installment of you know what I'm hoping will be a trilogy on politics and religion in the Nigerian Fourth Republic. And you know I'm happy to tell you that the second installment will be, is is due out next year. Um, the title is, um, if I can remember, Pastoral Power, Clerical State. Pentecostalism, Gender, and Sexuality in Nigeria. It will be published next year, 2022, by University of Notre Dame Press. So the argument in Pentecostal Republic is that you can't understand the Nigerian Fourth Republic without being attentive to the power of Pentecostalism. I, I take that further by suggesting that you can't understand Pentecostalism itself without attention to the power of, you know, influential Pentecostal pastors. So clerical state, the emphasis is on the clericalism. The book Clerical State is an advance on the argument in Pentecostal Republic, and it takes a close historical and sociological look at the agency of Pentecostal pastors, primarily in the Nigerian context, but also paying attention to further ramifications in a broader African context. All right. Well, that sounds like a great project, and I'm you know, looking forward to reading it when it comes out. Uh, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed uh, listening more, and uh, take care. Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thank you.